Welcome back to the Emergency Medical Minutes miniseries, Trauma is a Journey. I'm your host, Elizabeth Esty. In this second episode, we follow the journey of patients involved in a head-on car crash on a rural highway in the mountains of Colorado. Unlike most rural trauma, this story took a serendipitous turn when a group of mountain bikers consisting of two emergency medicine physicians, a pulmonologist, an interventional radiologist, and a real estate developer stumbled upon the crash just moments after it happened. In the first episode, we talked about what it was like to arrive on the scene and touched on how unfamiliar this pre-hospital setting can feel, even for physicians with extensive medical training. Our providers spoke of how the demands of caring for critically ill and injured patients are similar in some ways to the physical and mental demands of endurance mountain biking. We have Drs. Glenda Kwan, Madison Macht, J.P. Brewer, and Dylan Loyton, and we're especially grateful to Jeremiah Grantham for traveling from Leadville today to join us. Dr. Glenda Kwan is a regular guest on the EMM. She's a trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist at Swedish Medical Center and director of the surgery residency program there. Dr. Madison Macht is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Centura and happens to be married to Dr. Kwan. Dr. Dylan Loyton is an emergency physician and EMS physician and the medical director of the emergency department at Swedish Medical Center, and he happens to be married to me. He's also on staff at St. Vincent's Hospital in Leadville, where our story unfolds. Dr. J.P. Brewer is an emergency physician and EMS physician at Rose Medical Center in Denver. Jeremiah Grantham is a paramedic and director of the ambulance service at St. Vincent's Hospital. Deepest thanks to you all for taking the time to be here today. Elizabeth, you also highlighted uh, the question to to Jeremiah about his um, willingness to allow other people uh, who, you know, claim to be uh, doctors to show up. And it reminds me of uh, another commonality between all the fields of pre-hospital medicine and trauma surgery and critical care and emergency medicine, which is that of teamwork. And resuscitations uh, and management of patients in this situation is always better when we work as a team. And in this situation, uh, although Dylan's face being recognized by the crew uh, allowed a, a foot in the door, if you will, or you know, allowed uh, everybody to realize that we're on the same kind of team, it reminds me of all the best moments I've had in medicine. The soul-enriching kind of career-fulfilling moments are all those moments where I've taken care of uh, patients as a part of a team. Glenda, you treated these patients, and we'll we'll speak much more about your role in uh, Act 3 or 4 of this play, but I wonder, can you speculate, had these patients, had the scene time been half an hour, an hour, how, how long did these patients have before they died of their injuries? Yeah, I would say that the first patient to arrive was the middle-aged uh, front seat passenger, and she was definitely hypotensive and was in shock on arrival, um, and she was actively bleeding in her abdomen when we took her to the operating room. And you know, I think we forget sometimes that the entire time we're caring for that patient, there are vessels that are just draining her of blood the entire time. And it's easy to forget that because we can't see it happening. And so, um, you know, when she arrived, we immediately started a massive transfusion protocol. We took her directly to the operating room. We made no stops. Um, we didn't even do any plain x-rays, really. 
even though we knew that she had extremity fractures. Um, we took care of all of that in the operating room, but she was hypotensive throughout much of her operative course. Um, and until we clamped all the vessels and um, controlled that bleeding, um, you know, she was dying the whole time. Yeah. JP, so there you are. You're in the ambulance feeling um, a little out of your element, but not terribly. Dylan, did you ride with the other patient? Yeah, so shortly after JP got on the road with the first crew, we were able to get the woman out uh, from the passenger side, and she was similarly, and Glenda spoke to this, but so key not to be distracted by these fractures. I mean, that was the obvious thing is, you know, is gruesome, you know, sort of legs everywhere uh, with everything broken. Um, getting her on the ground, similarly sort of getting her uh, fracture stabilized with some duct tape, uh, basically, and then into the rig. And then we were on the road, and I had a medic and a EMT with me, and we grabbed a firefighter in the in the in the uh, front of the ambulance who was driving. And we're, we're, we're I don't know, went by quickly, but I would say maybe ten minutes, lights and sirens, uh, back to the back to St. Vincent's, give or take. Yeah, from that same minutes. Yeah, ten minutes back that's to about what it, about what it felt like. And then in that back of the ambulance, I asked for an IO. I kind of exposed her her upper arm, put in a humeral uh, IO myself while the EMT was bagging her, uh, had him put in an oral airway, which she kind of spit out a little bit, which is a good sign. Uh, we had her obviously on some oxygen, and and uh, we I could not feel a pulse. Uh, I would say her respiratory rate was, you know, probably in the 10 range, so very, very concerning, Uh low GCS. Once we had oxygen running, assisting our ventilations, we gave a little maybe 200 cc bolus of crystalloid through the, through the IO. Uh, she, she did get a kind of central pulses back and began to moan a little bit. And that was a ra- about the minute when we arrived at the ER. Jeremiah, could you describe the emergency department at St. Vincent's to us? Sure. We're extremely small. It's five beds. Uh, we have a two-bed uh, trauma room um, and a separate kind of isolation psych room, and then another two-bed room that we call uh, ortho, uh, and that's it. That's our ER. Um, we have a nurse's station and no other resources. Um, it's very, very small, and so this, this scene took up the entire trauma room. Um, and we had the two patients uh, and all of the responders, and it was, it was a very full trauma room with no room to spare. And you have... a couple of ventilators a ct scanner what we have yeah we have a radiology department with um, a single x-ray a single ct scanner and a single uh, ultrasound machine we have a smaller ultrasound machine in the in the er as well but uh, very small ct our uh, laboratory department is one person strong at night um, and yeah we have a single ventilator plenty of people to run bags and things but a single ventilator right now yeah and a single coverage physician yes yeah, yeah there's only just the one physician at a time uh-huh. um, so the addition of several others was huge. And Dr. Renee Carson was on shift at that point. Did she know you were coming? Were you guys able to call from the... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we, we make sure we call before we hit the ER. Um, and she got a pretty good report and knew a lot of what was coming prior to us getting there. Um, yeah. So you've got five physicians and a real estate developer in the wings. And I'll not lose sight of the fact that you all are very, very hungry, I assume, probably slightly dehydrated. And... Um, luckily, Shane was there keeping tabs on the tree line reservation at all times through this story. 
But it does wear, bear mentioning that we are capable of accomplishing things in our bodies that we never thought were possible. And what better place than Leadville? Um, I believe Dig Deep is a philosophy of many of the mountain bike racers up there. And we were truly digging deep, and hunger was the last thing on my mind at that point. So describe this scene in this tiny room at St. Vincent's. Yeah, and I, a shout out to Renee Carson, our colleague who who's not on the podcast right now. Uh, Renee was on duty. She's an emergency physician, and uh, we've worked together for several years. She's she's outstanding. And I, to set the scene, I think we hit radio coverage. I remember going around the corner by there's a subway uh, there, uh, the sandwich shop, and uh, we we get radio coverage at, at the subway, which is I don't know ten blocks from the hospital, basically as you hit the hit the town itself. And so I remember uh, listening to uh, Kayla, who is the medic in the rig with me, giving her biophone report and she starts to describe it. And I just, I remember saying, just say we're coming with two critical patients and they need to be intubated. That is a, a problem we have. It's, it's almost too much information at that point, right? Just give us the basics and, and be done. She did it. Kayla did an awesome job. And again, shout out to her because not only was she responsible for these patients' care, but she had to deal with her medical director leaning over her shoulder just, and micromanaging everything that she was doing. I'm sure it was terrifying. Just a little bit of pressure for Kayla, but she does she does do very well. She was that. awesome. So yeah, so we so we basically crash into this ER uh, with these two critical patients, and um, I basically gave a very brief, you know, two sentence report to Renee, who assumed care of the woman. Uh, and then I asked JP to continue kind of care of the young man. And the third uh, uh, patient had not yet arrived, thankfully. Uh, and we kind of went to work. It's, um, I'm, I'm going to put myself back in that ambulance for a second. Um, just because it's, it's a place I hadn't been, I've never worked critically and rapidly. And I can remember, um, uh, there was a firefighter who was helping me out. There was an EMT driving and another EMT in the back, and we were working on IV access, and I was trying to place an IO. And I was trying to sort of stand, uh, scoot in the back of this ambulance with bike shoes on, and it felt like I was in roller skates. And I can remember the firefighter sort of grabbing me to stabilize me so that I could then put in an IO, and I thought that was such a funny moment. And it was, it was a bit of a time warp because I didn't actually, I don't really know the lay of the land terribly well in Leadville. So I got in the back of this ambulance and then bumpy, bumpy, bumpy ride. And then I'm, I'm in an emergency department suddenly. And the other patient was actually already there. And it was, I mean, you know, you're sort of looking around to people. I don't know where I am, but I do know that we probably need to be doing our primary, secondary, and tertiary surveys again. We need to start reevaluating because we've we've just rapidly come out of this this scene. And I still don't have a great handle on what all is wrong with this this young man. That said, the younger patient, the driver, um, he was talking uh, to us in the back of the ambulance. Unfortunately, my Spanish is horrible, and he spoke Spanish primarily, but we were able to get a little bit of communication, and, and he could you know, tell me about things as I was trying to examine him and identify, you know, where he had long bone fractures, what was hurting him, that sort of thing. But yeah, I think you suddenly find yourself at the head of the bed. And I remember feeling, 
I, I'm comfortable up here at the head of the bed in an emergency department. I know this feeling, and and it was a little bit comforting. And and then as we progressed to the you know the phase of airway management, I I remember laughing a little bit as as Dylan said, "Oh, we have a pulmonologist with us who could potentially help us with our ventilator settings." And looking to my side, and there's a pulmonologist r- ready and waiting. It was it was serendipity again. <laughs> Yeah, and JP, uh, did a, you did a phenomenal job uh, managing the airway and, and, and largely just in communicating with everybody there. So again, a principle of successful resuscitations is uh, almost certainly you know successful uh, communication. And I remember you asking the names of the people that were helping, and we all communicated at that end. And we, uh, you know, established the airway, and uh, kind of simultaneously, uh, I think Dylan was uh, was getting the airway in, in the other patient. So very quickly, uh, we went from a full-on exhilaration of a mountain bike ride to just being at work, and uh, and that uh, was about ten or fifteen minutes. And and again, I just want to point shed light on the idea that the the difference between those two things is not as great as as you think. And Every day when we walk out to go to the grocery store, to walk our dogs, or to, you know, to go see a friend, uh, we're essentially still at work in some ways because we can be called into these moments. You're at work and you're deeply not at work. Dylan, you've, we've talked about this. What was that sense of being at work and really not being at work like for you? Yeah, it was, um, I'm, I feel like I'm fast forwarding a little bit to sort of the post hoc analysis of this, but it, it is definitely true that, you know, obviously this is a crazy time and in, in healthcare, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and our work lives have been impacted in every conceivable way. And I think it's safe to say that um, there's never been a time when we're more cognizant of physician and provider burnout, uh, whether that's in EMS or in nursing or amongst physicians or APPs. Um, and we just did something that was as stressful as any medical intervention I've ever been involved in. And yet this felt like the complete antidote to burnout. You know, this was at once, um, exactly our chosen profession, our calling, our metier, like this is what we're in this for. And at the same time, it had nothing to do with our jobs. And that was just powerfully uh, refreshing and, frankly, oddly exhilarating and and enjoyable um, to be at once so familiar and so comfortable, but at the same time uh, so different. Um, and you've got a radiologist there. How how did you make him feel included in this experience? Well, yeah, so it was great. I mean, I, I would just say just to maybe quickly give the rundown on the resuscitation and then... And, t- and talk about that as well. So basically, we, we crash in. JP takes over the care or c- continues the care of of the uh, male patient, the young male patient. Uh, Renee Carson was taking care of the woman who was clearly in hemorrhagic shock and actively dying. We really couldn't get a blood pressure on her, but at that point, she did have a pulse, and she was breathing and moaning a little bit, and Renee was setting up the intubator. I stepped out and got um, uh, our access transfer center on the line, I uh, just called them directly and was patched through to uh, Dr. Kwan, a trauma surgeon. And I remember getting on the phone and basically saying, 
Funny thing, Glenda. <laughs> I'm with your husband. Uh, but, you know, giving a quick quick report um, about these two critically injured trauma patients and the awesome thing about um, having colleagues that you work with for years and, you know, are friends with and, and have a real connection with is it was so easy to give that report. I mean, I literally just said to Glenda, hey, it's Dylan. I'm in Leadville. As you know, I'm with Madison. We're at uh, the ER, we have two critically injured patients. We're intubating them. They have obvious long bone fractures. They're in hemorrhagic shock. That's all I know. They'll be there in about an hour. Any questions? Yeah, your report was brief but accurate, and it was pretty much all I needed to know. I, Unlike you guys who kind of came up on the scene you know, out of the blue, I was grateful for the hour notice so that I could get resources together. When I got the call from you, I remember sort of like going to my Google calendar in my mind, like, wait a minute, I'm at work, where's Madison? Oh, oh my gosh, she's like mountain biking with Dylan, and oh, I can only imagine what you guys are doing up there, you know, like, how did this evolve from a bike ride to Dylan calling me about transfers? And I think to myself, oh, this is going to be a story. Were you worried that it was Madison who was hurt? Not at all. So it, it's funny, just chiming in here, I... um. My wife and I use an app on our phone uh, uh, because we're constantly shuttling children around and we have care providers helping us. So we have this sort of like, where are you kind of app on our phone. And um, I don't know if Madison had seen it or not, but as we were, were in the process of, of like, like performing the airway management on the patient, my phone was sitting next to me. I set it out so I had a clock and a text popped up that my wife said, why are you at the hospital? And was clearly concerned that one of us was injured and we were at the hospital. And ultimately I was able to communicate with her a few moments later and sort of say, no, here's what's going on. It's, uh, it's not us, but there's something definitely happening. Maybe three weeks prior to this bike ride, Dylan and Madison, who go on some epic bike rides, were on a ride. It was two, what normal people would do in a two days. They did in one day. And at 7 p.m., Madison texted me and Glenda something like, we're doing great, which I knew from a long experience didn't mean we're back in Leadville safe. And in fact, it did mean it's dusk and we're near the summit of Mount Ontario and we're enjoying ourselves. I think it was brief but accurate. <laughs> yeah, it was accurate, but it was a, it was a, maybe a lie is too strong a word, but lie of omission. Uh, you asked about the radiologist. It bears mentioning that, you know, when you're interpreting a fast, uh, as uh, these gentlemen were performing, uh, it does help to have a board-certified ultrasonographer, uh, radiologist there to interpret it. You know, I think uh, as the slight outsider in this field, I think um, a interventional radiologist is an even more outsider, and he was uh, even more, had that feeling that I had, which is, how can I help? My skill set is so small. I mean, uh, you know, a microcatheter might not be important right here, but certainly he was uh, willing and able, and, and sometimes it's just helpful to have another set of hands and another set of eyes. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I remember... I stepped out, talked to Glenda on the phone, came back in the room. We made sure that both patients at that point were intubated. Uh, we had T-pods, these kind of uh, pelvic uh, binders on. Again, we're not, it was a resource-poor environment. We're not doing really x-rays or really anything else, but we had our ultrasound, and JP and I both did a fast exam. And I remember your patient, JP, would had a you know, very obviously positive fast, very uh, large volume of hemoperitoneum. 
uh, the woman had a strangely, I mean, it was positive fast, but didn't appear to have as much blood as, as one might expect. And I remember that was when Peter was over my shoulder and we're sort of looking at this and looking at her pelvis and kind of agreed, yeah, it looks like there's like a hematoma down in her pelvis, but not as much, you know, blood in Morrison's pouch as you might expect. So he definitely played a role. I think Peter was, was awesome. And at that point, you know, we called for all of the blood, which is two units at Leadville, and we gave it to the woman. And it, I mean, that was that moment where it was obvious that this young man was also in hemorrhagic shock, but she was dying. And we started blood on her, and I would say probably 10 to 15 minutes later, we had an aeromedical, first aeromedical crew on scene. And thank goodness, they, this was a flight for life. They're based out of Frisco, which is about, uh, 30 miles away, maybe 40 miles away as crow flies. And they have whole blood with them and uh, brought it in, and they were awesome. Glenda, could you describe what you encountered when they arrived? Yeah, so in the hour that I had uh, lead time uh, from when I got a call from Dylan, I knew that these two patients were probably going to need our OR capabilities. So, of course, I let the OR know. The trauma anesthesiologist was aware I called in uh, my partner, Casey Banton, who is also the trauma medical director here at Swedish Medical Center, because I knew that I would probably be taking the first sickest patient to the OR, and then I needed another trauma surgeon here to evaluate the second patient on his arrival. And also knowing that the patients had fractures, I also contacted Dr. Wade Smith, who's one of our uh, trauma orthopedic surgeons here at Swedish, and made sure that he was aware, uh, and he was also uh, present when those patients arrived. So I had this relative luxury of having some time to think about what I needed and to gather sort of the resources and the personnel that I needed to get these patients to the operating room right away. So I was grateful for that. Um, When she arrived, she was still hypotensive. Uh, She had a faint pulse, hypotensive, and we repeated the fast. And again, the fast was positive, but not with a lot of hemoperitoneum, so a little bit uh, really didn't sound like it had changed much from the FAST exam that you got. She did have two, uh, both of her lower extremities. She had obvious fractures. We did just a, the quick FAST in the ED, a chest X-ray, just to check for pneumothorax and for ET tube placement to make sure nothing had shifted or changed in flight. Did a AP pelvis X-ray. She didn't have any uh, evidence of an open book pelvic fracture. We took the teapot off. And then we took her straight to the operating room, and um, Wade Smith went with me. So without any x-rays of her lower extremities, he x-fixed both lower extremities just on the spot. I mean, just by feel and his experience. And really, there's no downside to x-fixing lower extremities, even if there's no fracture. I mean, she obviously had fractures, but she had both lower extremities um, x-fixed as I did the exploratory laparotomy. So we worked in concert. We prepped her her from chin to toes, basically, uh, and we both uh, got to work. When we entered her abdomen, she did have blood, uh, so hemoperitoneum, as one might expect. But the reason her FAST exam wasn't as um, evident uh, of the bleeding as we would have expected was that uh, most of her injury was in the mesentery of the descending colon. And so the blood was sort of extravascular, but had been contained within the folds of the mesentery. And so her mesentery of her descending colon was like the size of a football. So there were units of blood in there, um, but not something you would be able to see on a fast exam because it's sort of contained within the folds of the mesentery. So that was probably her, her major vascular injury. 
Um, she also had a perforated small bowel, say about 80 centimeters from the ligament of trite, so proximal um, jejunum. She had a couple little holes in her small bowel uh, just from impact and um, sort of a perforation of a hollow viscous. And then she had another uh, bowel and um, mesentery injury at the distal ilium right at the ligament of trites. So three areas of bowel injury um, with significant bleeding. For our less medical listeners, could you say that all again <laughs> in terms that a, a non-medical listener would understand? Sure. So both her small bowel and her large bowel were injured, uh, not just the bowel itself, but also the blood vessels that supply that bowel. And so not only did she have bowel contents escaping into her abdominal cavity, but a significant amount of blood loss as well. How long was she in your OR? In total, probably about an hour. Um, so I had to remove three areas of her bowel, the two areas of small bowel that were either torn or that the blood supply to that area had been destroyed. And then the thing that took the longest was really taking out that whole left-sided colon because the blood supply there had been so completely disrupted that there was no way that bowel could survive and was at risk for then perforating and then having more contamination and spillage. And so that whole thing took about an hour. We made no attempts to try to hook her bowel back together because she was so sick. We have these surgical staplers that lay down six rows of little titanium staples and a little blade comes in between and cuts them. And so the two ends get stapled off and we throw out this and the, the part of the bowel that we don't need. And then we leave all the little bowel segments stapled off, but we don't make any attempt to put them back together at that first operation. And then um, we evacuate all the blood from her abdomen. And then we sort of, um, we leave her abdominal wall open. We put in a negative pressure wound uh, therapy dressing called a wound vac. And that allows us to take her to and from the operating room without having to cut her skin and abdominal wall open again and again. And it's a quick way to get in and out of the operating room. So the key to this type of operation is to get her out of the OR and to the ICU as quickly as possible. She's had the trauma of this accident and then the trauma of you going in and Absolutely. doing what you do. Absolutely. So it's important that these patients are getting ongoing resuscitation because as we're operating, they continue to bleed. And they're um, becoming more acidotic. They're becoming colder now because the OR is cold. Uh, her abdomen is open, and she's losing lots of body heat um, from this open abdomen um, and just continued blood loss and acidosis and coagulopathy, and, and people get into danger that way. And is this a, a typical picture for a person in a tiny car hit head-on by a big truck? Yeah, I would say that none of the injuries were surprising. These are all things that we frequently see in uh, big auto accidents. So this was just run-of-the-mill for you. Uh, run-of-the-mill, but certainly exciting, especially for the second-year resident who was helping me that night. Uh-huh. And, and what about, did you care for the, the other accident victim also? I did not because I was in the operating room with um, the female patient. Again, my uh, partner and trauma medical director was there on scene when the second patient arrived, um, and she took him to the operating room, and his injuries were remarkably similar. He also had uh, lower extremity long bone fractures and similar blood vessel injuries in his abdominal cavity. So she did a very similar operation that I did in my room. 
And how are they doing now? The young man, who was the driver of the vehicle, has been discharged from the hospital. He went to rehab at Swedish Acute Rehab, and I believe is doing quite well. The female patient continues to have some medical complications related to the bowels, those complex bowel injuries. Um, so she's still in the hospital, although she's alive and talking and doing therapy, but she'll probably need a, a, at least one more operation uh, in her abdomen before she can be um, discharged from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Dylan, you had a thought? Just a, I mean, a great description of damage control surgery, you know, and I think that's, uh, that's kind of uh, just such an important uh, concept for our listeners to understand. I think in the old days, these people used to like go to the OR and have everything fixed and they could be in the OR for hours and hours and hours and that's no longer done. Yeah, it's no longer done. We have such, um, we've come so far in the field of critical care medicine that we are able to keep patients alive in the ICU, resuscitate them so that we can go back and do more surgery on them. And as Elizabeth mentioned, um, when we operate on people, it's a significant amount of trauma. And so we want to just control the active bleeding and then give the patients some time to recover from both their injuries and then their first operation, which is Uh, very traumatic. And so in the ICU, we correct their acidosis, we warm them up, we make sure that we're giving as close to whole blood transfusions as we can to uh, resuscitate them. And then in 24 to 48 hours, we take them back to the operating room. And at that point, we assess them um, for stability uh, and the ability to tolerate definitive surgery at that point. Can we then put their bowel back together? Can we put rods and pins in their extremities? And so we assess each day whether or not they're fit to go back to the OR and can they survive another traumatic trip to the OR. JP? I was just going to say a couple things that have come to my head as, as you've been talking. Thank you for that amazing description of damage control surgery. It's, I, I work at a facility that is, we do not have trauma surgeons there, so I'm not regularly speaking with them. And when I get to hear these descriptions of the cases, it's phenomenal. So First and foremost, thank you for managing and taking care of these patients. And second, thanks for that awesome description. That's, it's good to hear. I mean, this, you know, I keep coming back to this concept of team sport and what a team sport this was all along the way. One other thing that I, I don't know how germane it is, and it's going to feel like a little bit of a public service announcement, but I was amazed with, you know, these patients did not have head injuries, which I thought was amazing to me. Obviously, they had intra-abdominal injuries, probably byproduct of severe blunt trauma, seatbelt injury, that sort of a thing. But I remember I have outside of a commercial or perhaps, you know, uh, an, an ad when buying a vehicle, I've never seen the entire curtain airbag system deployed in a car before. And I remember seeing that going, that's interesting how that works. And it clearly, you know, it speaks to speaks to vehicles these days, you know, that their heads were so well protected in a massive trauma in a subcompact vehicle at at high speeds. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, at the end of the day, these these people have life-altering, severe, life-threatening injuries, and yet are, I think, primarily neurologically intact and 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 grace of seatbelts and airbags and modern car design. You know, one thing I talk to my EMS crews about all the time, and we sort of obsess over in EMS uh, pre-hospital medicine, is whether or not to give IV fluids, you know, and I think we could have a whole conversation, and I'd love to hear from Madison and, and Glenda about this as well, but 
These patients were hypotensive for quite a long time, and I felt compelled with the woman to to give her a little bit of crystalloid initially just because she had no pulses, and, and I think that was probably a reasonable thing to do. But in some sense, her prolonged period of hypotension, while not optimal, may have been somewhat protective. Glenda, can you speak to that, Madison? Yeah, I think in trauma and critical care, we have come to learn about the benefits of permissive hypotension, especially in these patients who we recognize are still actively bleeding. And had she gotten more crystalloid, had we bumped her blood pressure up to a, a normotension or supranormal tension, could that have resulted in increased bleeding? I think it might have. Certainly giving her a lot of crystalloid would have had a dilutional effect to whatever coagulation factors she had left in her vascular system, and I think that would have been detrimental. And our, our preference is always to give blood products when it's clear that the patient is having hemorrhagic shock. But sometimes in an austere environment, you only have what you have. Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, you heard them say that there are a total of two units available in Leadville. And so I agree with everything Dr. Kwan said, and also that transportation from rural settings uh, becomes super important and the amount of of time that passed. I mean, it's not a stretch to say that if uh, 30 more minutes had passed, regardless of not transfusing, that, that the outcomes would have been very different. And tying back to what JP said as well, one of the tricky decisions you have to make with this concept of permissive hypotension is whether or not there's a head injury present, which tends to kind of shift the equation a little bit, probably towards more aggressive resuscitation. We can't uh, directly fix a head injury, but we can just prevent or try to prevent secondary injury from hypoxia and, and, and hypotension, poor perfusion. These folks were very fortunate in that they did not have primarily head injuries and so could probably tolerate that hypotension better than than some might and it would have been an even uh, more difficult decision had had they had a bad head injury which uh, which which they didn't well you're speaking to dr Lloyden has been a big change that I've seen in my EMS career in the you know, 10, 12 years I've been in it is, you know, no, we're no longer putting in the 214 gauges bilaterally and, and infusing four liters of, of crystalloid. It's very much backing off on that permissive hypotension. Um, we've seen a big change, um, and obviously Dr. Kwan, you're seeing a big change as well in the patients that we're, we're bringing to you by doing that, which has been really interesting. Thank you, Jeremiah, and thanks to all of you. There's so much to talk about here. Clearly, trauma is a journey. But it's clear that how we provide care for trauma patients has seen its own important evolutions. Tune in to our next episode to hear discussions of ATLS, medical legal concerns, teamwork, and MacGyvering care in trauma and EMS.